And church, that's the heartbeat of God, is to see the nations come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That God has a heart for the nations. He desires all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And when you and I fast forward through our Bibles to the end in Revelation chapters 5 and 7, we see where people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we will be there singing and worshiping and dancing and basking in all that Christ has accomplished for us. All that this would continually be the heart for us as a church is seeing people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Why? Because that's the heartbeat of God. And that is the heartbeat that we see in the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. A man who is taking the gospel to a nation that has never heard of Jesus, and he's going right into the heart of the capital city of thought and philosophy to the ancient city of Athens. We see people hear the gospel, they believe, and their lives are changed forever. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We have been going through the book of Acts for a very long time as a faith family, but there is just so much to unpack in this great historical narrative of the early church. So far, we've seen how the Holy Spirit has been working in and through God's people. We have seen revivals and riots earthquakes and jailbreaks, miracles and martyrdoms, churches planted and government shaken. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's made his way onto the shores of Europe into modern day Greece. We have seen how God has saved people through Paul's gospel preaching. People are going from death to life. We've seen this in the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. People are hearing the gospel and they're trusting in Jesus. Simultaneously, revival is being met with resistance. That there are people in every city who are pushing back against Paul, pushing back against this gospel that he is preaching. What a great reminder that faithfulness to Jesus does not mean that you're going to have an easy life. Obedience to Jesus means you will have a joy-filled life, not necessarily an easy life. And when you hold up the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be surprised when people push back against you. When people realize that their idols that they have held fast to for a very long time and they hear what Christ has done, the light of Jesus exposes the darkness, but John 3, the darkness has not understood it. People don't like hearing about Christ and who He is because He reveals within us our need for repentance and running to Him for grace. Here is Paul going into all of these cities and he's preaching the gospel and people's lives are being changed. And here he is in Acts 17 going into Athens, wanting to make much of Christ in a city that is saturated with idols. It is there that he's waiting for his compatriots, his brothers in the faith, Silas and Timothy, to join him. And as he waits, he decides to redeem the time and use this as a moment 
to preach the gospel. And so we pick up here in Acts 17, beginning with verse 16, and the scripture says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination." Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Last week, we looked at the text and saw specifically in verses 16 through 18, in the Apostle Paul, the the heart of a missionary, and the feet of a missionary, and the message of a missionary. Today, we're going to look primarily at Paul's message to the Areopagus. Paul wanted to reach people with the gospel. So when he gets to Athens, he does what he always does. It's his custom. He goes to the synagogue. It's there he began to preach the Old Testament and unpack it and make a beeline to Jesus Christ. But we also see in Acts 17 where Paul went to the Agora, the marketplace. He went there and he began preaching the gospel. While he's in the Agora, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, people are blown away by his teaching. And so they take him and they lead him over to the Areopagus. The Roman name of the Areopagus is Mars Hill. In fact, I showed you a picture last week of what it looks like. Right now where you're looking, this is below you, the ancient city of Athens. You're standing at the Agora and up to your right over there, those online, I'm sorry you can't see it, Over to your right, that is Mars Hill. 
That's the Areopagus. That is where the Apostle Paul is preaching right here in Acts 17. And it's right there with some of the most brilliant minds in the world gathered around him. They are there in this facility, in this, this, this campus here, where they would lean in and they would share philosophy and these ideas. It would be kind of like a, like a modern-day gathering, a, a summit of uh, college professors and PhDs meeting and talking and sharing ideas minus the pipes, the tweed jackets, and the elbow patches. That's what Paul's doing up there. Engaging the sharpest minds in the world. And it is there that he began to engage them with the gospel. What I want us to do today is to look at this message that he preaches on Mars Hill and and how we can learn how to engage our culture with the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at the text. The first thing I want you to see is this. If you're going to engage the culture, you must first identify the culture. Identify the culture. As Paul is walking through Athens, he's seeing these idols, these statues to Greek and Roman gods. As one historian has has said, is that there are in Athens more idols than there are people. It's saturated with all of these temples and these gods that people worshipped and they revered and they sacrificed to them. It is there that Paul is seeing the architecture of these buildings, of these temples, of all of these gods. And so verse 22, he holds up a mirror to the culture. He says, people of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar to which was inscribed to an unknown God. Paul was identifying the culture around him and he's interpreting it in light of Scripture. And he sees a path in order to engage them with the gospel. He's walking around the city and he's seeing the architecture, these buildings, these temples, and these idols. And he sees one, it says, to an unknown God. He makes a mental note, like he bookmarks it. And he knows, I'm going to come back to that because there's my hook when I go fishing. This is my way of having an end to the culture. He's surveying the landscape of the city and the architecture of the buildings is telling him who and where the gods are. If you were to go to New York City, The architecture tells you a story of the idols, the gods that people worship. You'll see skyscrapers and Wall Street where the gods of money and power and status are worshipped. If you go to Los Angeles, you'll find all these hospitals where people can go to get plastic surgery where the god of beauty and attractiveness is worshipped. Well, as you think about the architecture of your community, what do the buildings tell you about what people worship? If you were to visit the cities of Tuscaloosa and Auburn and Birmingham, what do the architectural buildings tell you about what people worship? This week, I was watching a video of a soccer game over in Spain. And before the game even began, they had a panoramic view of the crowd. 70,000 people packed into this ginormous stadium, all wearing the same colors. The crowd, mostly men, holding scarves with their team name on it above their heads, swaying. And you can hear a pin drop. And then all of a sudden, this old organ begins to play. 
And these men with tears streaming down their cheeks begin to sing. And I had two thoughts as I watched it. The first is, how can we get men to sing like that on a Sunday morning? How can we get men with tears in their, running down their cheeks and with passion and with gusto belt out to the glory of King Jesus? My second thought was that is a picture of worship. Banners and flags waving, people wearing the gear and singing and crying and giving their best all for the glory of their soccer team. And I think, oh my goodness, that's a picture of what Paul is seeing here in Athens as he's seeing people bowing down and sacrificing and doing all of these worship behaviors to all of these false gods. And so as he goes into this community, he sees this altar to an unknown God. He identifies what's happening in the culture. He sees a way of wanting to reach people with the gospel. He has a way in. So the first thing we see in the text is that he identified the culture. But number two, he would use the culture. He would use the culture. Paul transitions from the altar of the unknown God and says, Therefore, while you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul uses the culture to make a beeline to the gospel. But as you notice in the message here, he doesn't preach like he's in the synagogue. He doesn't reference Old Testament patriarchs. He doesn't reference Old Testament kings. He doesn't quote Isaiah or the Psalms or Habakkuk like he did back in uh, Acts 13 at Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue. He doesn't reference Old Testament scriptures at all. Why? Because his audience isn't Jewish. They don't care about the Old Testament. And so he is changing his methodology in order to reach him with the gospel. You see, Paul was missiologically versatile. He doesn't change the message. He would always preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We see that all throughout his ministry. But as he is engaging the culture around him, he's modifying his methodology in order to reach him with the gospel. As you think about people in your life at work, at school, on the playground, you probably don't need to be sharing with them religious language that they have no idea what that means. We live in a culture that is biblically and theologically illiterate. And so as you think about engaging people with the gospel as a missionary for Jesus Christ, you're going to have to change your methodology while holding fast to the message. So to reach the Gentiles, Paul does something different. He doesn't touch Jewish law, but rather he focuses on two things, what they can see and what they can feel. What they can see, creation. What they can feel, conscience. Creation and conscience. Oftentimes, you'll see this pattern in Paul's preaching that when he's engaging Gentiles, he begins with creation and conscience as a way of getting into their hearts with the gospel. He begins with creation. Look at verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Paul is holding up God as the creator of all 
things, and he is distinct from all of these other false idols and gods that you Athenians worship. Verse 24, he does not live in shrines made by human hands. There is indeed no building on the planet that can contain the creator of the universe. The sovereign creator is Lord over all, and he cannot be created or shaped into an idol or a statue. What Paul's doing here is he's using reason to point out how absurd idolatry is. In fact, he's pointing to God as the all-sufficient one. Verse 25, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. You see, God does not need anything. God does not need anyone. The God of the Bible is the eternal creator of heaven and earth who is eternally self-existent and self-sufficient. God has always existed in eternity past. He will always exist in eternity future. He is holy in his nature, perfect in all of his actions, and all of creation is completely dependent upon him. Here's the truth. You are only alive right now because he said so. You have air in your lungs and a beating heart right now only because he said so. In him we live and move and have our being. Apart from him, we have nothing and we are nothing. You and I are completely dependent upon him. He is dependent upon no one. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And he holds the cosmos in the palm of his hands. He rules over the nations. Verse 26. From one man, Adam, from one man, he has made every nationality. Paul here is pointing to a literal, historical Adam as the federal head through which all of mankind comes from. You see, God made man and God determines, verse 26, every nation's geographical location and even how long they will exist. God rules over the nations and yet God is knowable. He has revealed himself as creator, ruler, sovereign controller of the world, and men have no excuse for not knowing God because he has revealed himself to them in creation. Verse 27, so that men might seek God, perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. How encouraging is that? Maybe you're here today or engaging online and you feel like God is so far away. You feel miles and miles apart from God. He's not. He is near. God has revealed himself in creation and through creation he is saying, I want you to seek after me. I want you to approach me. You will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with your whole heart, Jeremiah 33, 3. You come after the Lord and he will come after you. He is a faithful God who is knowable and he invites you to himself. He has pursued you in the person and work of his son, Jesus 
Jesus who has come to bring mankind back into a right relationship with God. He is not the God of Allah who spins creation into existence and then disengages. I was at the summit sharing the gospel with a Muslim one time. And as I began to compare and contrast Allah from the God of the Bible, he began to weep. As I began to explain to him that God is personal and he cares about us and he desires a relationship with us. This is foreign to the false God that he had been bowing down to his entire life. You see, what we see is that God reveals himself in creation and he invites people to pursue him and to know him. I want you to know that God is knowable and you can draw near to him. And when you do, he will draw near to you. Hear me on this. You are as close to God as you want to be. And he will draw near to you. This is what Paul is driving home, is that in creation, God is showing that he has made himself visible and known and approachable. He's not a distant God who's disinterested in people. His nature is not like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by the human art or imagination. No, he is the source of all of life, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, the sustainer of the universe. He's the one who made you. He's the one who knows you better than you know yourself. He's the one who loves you. He pursues you. He saves you. He keeps you. He sustains you. He promises that he's never going to leave you. He is faithful and true and trustworthy in all of his ways, and you can bank your soul upon him. Paul here is comparing and contrasting who God is with all of these temporary idols around these Athenians, and they begin to understand oh my goodness, this God is like nothing we have ever thought of or understood. To drive this home, Paul quotes one of their own poets. I find it interesting here. Paul was studying their culture. He's reading their literature. He wants to be able to speak their cultural language to advance the gospel. He's becoming all things to all people so that he might by all means save some. He's a student of the culture. His, his mission is the Great Commission. As some of your own poets have said, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. It must be exhausting always being the anti-hero. And some of you are thinking, what is he talking about? I'm quoting one of your poets, Taylor Swift. What Taylor is saying in that song, her words, not mine, is she is insecure. She's looking to find her true self. She's looking to find her identity. But you and I both know that you cannot find your identity. You can't find your true self by looking inward. You find your true self by looking upward. You can't look within. You have to look without. You see, in order to find yourself, you've got to lose yourself. In order to live, you have to die. 
In order to discover who you were made to be, you have to know the one who made you and you have to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me on this. If you are looking for your identity in anyone other than Jesus Christ, you will miss him. People will always be insecure when they look for their identity apart from Jesus Christ. So many adults never get this. When I speak to teenagers, I I pound this home over and over saying, please grab this at a young age because this will save you from so much heartache and brokenness in your life and bad decisions. Don't look to find your identity in your friends, how much money you make, how big your house is, the kind of clothes you wear, how many likes you get, how popular you are, or what kind of friends you have. They will always let you down. You were not made to find your identity in the things of this world. You were made by God, for God, and to find your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you begin to discover that your identity is in Christ, you begin to realize who I am begins with whose I am. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when people put their identity in a sports team, who they are is wrapped up on the ups and downs based upon a scoreboard and the athletic prowess of a teenager. That's an insecure foundation for your life. If you put your identity in your money, your money goes up and it comes down. Here today, gone tomorrow. Your money can be taken from you. It's a terrible God. You can put your identity in your attractiveness. I've got bad news. You're going to get old. I can personally testify when you hit 40, things go sideways. Losing hair, gaining weight, can't see anything. It's just like it's life. You can't put your identity in how attractive you are, no matter how many surgeries or money you throw at it. You can't put your identity in your fame. It's fickle. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's a vapor. Plant your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all of our poets that we listen to on the radio are telling us, I'm looking for hope. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for identity. That's what all the songs come down to. And we know the answer. You're not going to find it at a honky-tonk. You're not going to find it in the clothes you wear or the number of people you sleep with or the kind of drugs that you do. You find your identity firmly planted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Paul using the culture around him to reach people with the gospel. He's pointing them through creation as a means of transitioning to who Christ is and what he has come to do. But then Paul pivots away from creation in verse 30, and he transitions to the conscience. He goes from what people can see to what they can feel. All right? Conscience. Con meaning with, science meaning knowledge. Every human being has a conscience. God has put it there. All children have it. All adults have it. All teenagers have a conscience. When we disobey God's law, we feel it. 
There's a sense of guilt that we feel when we disobey God's law. What we see here in the text is that God, is He has shown His goodness. He has shown His forbearance. He has withheld judgment for a period of time to give people the opportunity, Paul says, to repent, to turn from sin and to trust in faith by, by faith in, in the Lord. Okay, repentance, turning from sin, turning from self, turning from pride, turning from going your way, turning away from following your heart, and you're turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has given mankind a time to repent. Why? Because there's coming a day of judgments. Okay, Paul is laying out, he starts with Adam, isn't that in creation? Adam, he has this story arc and he's going all the way to the end, a day of judgment that's coming. And it's, it's an amazing here. Judgment is coming. Who's the judge? Verse 31. The man he is appointed as judge is the same man who was raised from the dead. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing? Paul is speaking to their conscience. He's speaking speaking beyond the physical. He's speaking right into their hearts. He's pulling back the curtain on what the Athenians already know. Judgment is coming. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. Every person knows eternity is coming. Every person knows that God is real. Every person knows that they have broken God's law. How do they know that? Their conscience. But Romans 1, men have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. We will cover up our conscience. We don't want to hear the voice telling us we have disobeyed God. We don't want to hear that, so we suppress it. Which, if you ignore your conscience, you become desensitized to it. You become desensitized to it, and eventually you will silence it. But here's the good news of the gospel. The judge, whom we must give an account, is also the Savior. The one who we will stand before is also the same one who comes and rescues and saves us. You can picture it like this. On the last day, you stand before the great tribunal of God. Your judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of your sins are laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, Hebrews 4. But here's the good news. The judge gets up off the bench. And he comes and he stands right by you. And he becomes your defense attorney. That's what the gospel does. That anybody who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus by faith, all of your guilt is no longer on you because it was placed upon Jesus at the cross. All of your disobedience is placed upon Jesus. All of your guilt and your shame was placed upon Jesus and you bear it no more. This is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that he is the one who not only forgives you of your sin, but he saves you on the last day. Oh, if you don't know Jesus today that you would turn from your sin and trust in him by faith. Don't bank on your wife's faith, your grandparents' faith, someone else's faith. We all come into the kingdom like we're going into a stadium through a turnstile. 
one at a time. And you have to personally come to the point in time in your life in which you say, God, I have messed up. My life is a mess. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against people. I deserve judgment. But Jesus, I believe that you died in my place. You took my judgment at the cross. And now I'm banking my soul, not on my goodness, but upon his. I'm trusting my soul, not in me, but in him. And Jesus is my king, my savior, my Lord, my master, my friend. I'm submitting my life completely to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Jesus, you are the only one who can save me on the last day. I'm not banking on my good works. I'm not trusting in man's philosophy. I'm not hoping in my heart. I'm trusting in what Christ has accomplished for me through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where you place your hope. That's where you place your trust. You're banking your soul upon Christ. And here is Paul before these Athenians. And he speaks to what they can see, creation. He speaks to what they can feel, the conscience. And he's making a beeline to the gospel. He begins to talk about the resurrection. This is number three. Identify the culture. Use the culture. Number three, reach the culture. As soon as Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, some of the Athenians, these PhDs, pocket protectors, they begin to grumble and to sneer. They begin to ridicule and mock Paul for believing. You think someone can come back from the dead? You actually believe that? But there were others whose hearts were stirred. They wanted to know more about this message that Paul was preaching. And even some of them, they believed in Christ. Dionysius, an elite member of the Areopagus, a woman named Demarius, and there are others who aren't named in Scripture who hear this message and they believe. Some rejected, some received. What a lesson for you and I. When you preach Jesus at your workplace, at the lunch table, in the dugout, some will reject it. Some will receive it. You can't control either. Your job is to be a faithful messenger of the gospel, to deliver the good news. And we trust and pray that God is the one who changes the heart. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to today? What's this? It's your impact point. Study your culture and preach Jesus. Study your culture and preach Jesus. As you think about engaging people who are in your world, who think differently than you, study them. Right now, there are missionaries all over the world in foreign contexts who don't know the language, the culture, or the people. So what are they doing? They're studying. They're examining. How, what are their gods? What are the things they love? What do they worship? What's the music they listen to? The shows they watch on TV? How do they entertain themselves? What sports do they play? What kind of clothing do they wear? How can I get the gospel into where they already are? And as a missionary, which is what you and I are as followers of Jesus, we're sojourners passing through this world. We have an assignment of taking as many people with us to heaven as possible. So we're missionaries in a foreign land. We're engaging 
acknowledging the culture around us. We're finding where people are. And we begin to show them, hey, these things that you're banking your soul upon, it's going to lead to death. It will not satisfy you. You will not find fulfillment or hope in these things you're going after. But there is one who is tempted in every way that you are, yet without sin, lived a perfect sinless life, gave his life for you, and he rose from the dead, and he offers eternal life to anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in him by faith. Would you believe upon him today? This is the gospel that we preach. Several years ago, I was in the savannah of Kenya. And had the opportunity to go into different schools and with a bunch of teenagers began preaching the gospel. And it was unbelievable seeing thousands of teenagers putting their faith in Christ. It was unbelievable. And this past year, I was in the Middle East engaging religious people. I talked to one man, I began sharing the gospel with him and he mocked me and sneered. How can you believe that? That's ridiculous. We preach Christ. Some will reject him. Some will receive him. But let's study the culture and let's preach Jesus and watch what he's going to do.